Well, good morning. I mean, the Heisermans are troopers, bringing a one-week-old here to church. Congratulations, guys. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be returning to our study of the book of Acts, seeking a new normal that is defined by God's Word. And this morning, we're going to be reading in Acts 18, verse 24 through 19, verse 7. So if you'd read with me, chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures... He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately." And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Let's give our heart to the Lord. Father, Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I'll be just saying a little while ago that it is well with our souls. And Lord, for those of us who know you, that is deeply true. And yet at the same time, we are a people in need of revival. Lord, there are aspects of our life that need your renewal. And so, Lord, would we be open to receive that? As that psalm says, you accomplish this through your word. So, Lord, as we give attention to your word, would your spirit come upon us? bringing revival. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this portion of Acts, we find Paul beginning what is typically called his third missionary journey. And what he's going to do is is revisit some of the churches that he had helped to establish. And along the way, he'll spend about two years in the city of Ephesus seeking to build a healthy church community. 
And some of the things that are highlighted in Ephesus give us some insight into normal Christianity. And in our text for today, two themes in particular are highlighted that are of central purpose in the book of Acts. Although we don't always do a good job of holding them together. John Bright once said that when he gets dressed in the morning, he doesn't need to decide whether to wear a shirt or trousers, but that the properly attired man wears both. And thankfully, we all followed that principle this morning. Otherwise, that would have been awkward. Uh, But there are some things that we might be tempted to emphasize to the neglect of other things. And yet God intends that they would go hand in hand. And that's true of the dimensions of the word and of the spirit, which we'll give attention to today. But know this about yourself. Your personality, makeup, influences what you value and appreciate. And some of you would want us to just shut down the whole preaching thing and and just do worship and ministry. You know, that would be God moving in our midst. Others might not be fond of the whole singing activity. And you'd prefer some sort of public debate or exchange of ideas. You know, you get excited when truth is being articulated and defended. But Martin Lowe-Jones defined preaching as logic on fire. And that's a striking description. Preaching is tight argumentation for concepts that, when attended by the power of God, have the ability to change your life. You see, the preaching of God's Word is the ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit's work in believers is the application of the Word. John Piper says, "...the Word without the Spirit is pedantic." The spirit without the word is chaos. Yes, and what God has joined together, let no one separate. On the episodes of Apollos and the Ephesian disciples, they illustrate that normal Christianity includes both doctrinal understanding and an experiential dimension. And we're called to grow in both. Christianity is a set of truth claims... And it is an encounter with the living God. It is both stridently orthodox and unembarrassingly supernatural. It seeks precise theological formulation and vibrant pursuit of the presence of Christ. It is satisfied with neither cold rationalism nor untethered experientialism. It is all about the Word of God moving in power by the Spirit. Jesus tells us in John six sixty three, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But then he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's, it's what we might call desperate orthodoxy. We give attention to every word coming from the mouth of God, and we are dependent on God to move. We worship in spirit and in truth, and and our text is designed to encourage us in both of these areas, and I'm excited for us to 
receive that. All right, let's see these themes come into play in our passage, beginning with Apollos. This section begins by introducing us to a Jew named Apollos. That's an interesting detail because Apollos isn't exactly a nice Jewish name. It'd be kind of like an Irish Catholic named Muhammad. But it becomes clear when we find out that he's from Alexandria. And, and so he is a Hellenistic or, or a Greek-speaking Jew. But beyond that, Alexandria was an intellectual center in Egypt. It was known for its world-renowned Alexandrian library, which was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It was also the place where the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was produced. And so Luke wants us to know that Apollos is an eloquent man, or rather an educated man. But he also says that he's an eloquent man. He, he knows how to turn a phrase, how to collect words together in a beautiful and compelling way. He's able to express truth in a way that will command your attention. But the most important description here is that he is competent in the Scriptures, which at this point would refer to the Old Testament writings. Ken Hughes tells the story of John Brodus, who was a 19th century seminary professor and author of a famous book on preaching. And three weeks before his death, he looked with a piercing stare onto his seminary class and he gave them this final bit of wisdom. He said, I'll leave you with this appeal. Be mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. There is no more important value for preachers. Is that what you're looking for in a pastor? You know, in light of all the leadership books that get published today, it's, it's interesting what isn't highlighted here. Not mighty in managerial techniques, mighty in visionary planning, mighty in people relational skills. All those things are helpful and, and to a degree necessary for pastors. But at the end of the day, what do we have to bring? We have the ministry of the word. Look up in your text at verse 5, this passing comment that Luke makes. He says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to Jews and to Greeks that the Christ was Jesus, occupied with the word. That that is the dominating priority for those who lead. And it is something that every believer should strive toward. What are you occupied with? What gets your attention? You know, our, our attention is a precious commodity. We have limited resources of it. What do you give it to? Your dream life on Pinterest, (laughs) whatever TV show you're binge streaming on Netflix, the most recent cat video on YouTube, sports draft picks, or the latest gossip from the entertainment industry. 
it's easy to be occupied with the wrong things. In his book, Slogging Along in the Paths of Righteousness, Dale Ralph Davis tells of a Boston orthopedic surgeon who was suspended from his practice because during a case of back surgery with a a spinal fusion procedure, about six hours in, he told everybody in the operating room that he had to step out. What was so urgent? Well, he went away to deposit his paycheck at the bank. And apparently, for some reason, the Board of Registration and Medicine thought that back surgery was more important than a bank deposit. And I think that one day we'll realize that we've had the same kind of priority problem in a bunch of categories. And so Paulos is competent with the scriptures. He's educated in the way of the Lord and fervent in spirit. He has a zeal for the things of God. And it says he spoke accurately about Jesus, although he had a limited understanding, as we'll see in a moment. But you know what's amazing to me about Apollos is that at this point, he has no apparent connection to the apostles or to any major church leader. And his understanding of truth is somewhat deficient. But he sees himself as having a responsibility to minister and to spread the good news about Jesus. And as far as we know, no one told Apollos to do this. He's just living normal Christianity. As Calvin writes, If Apollos preached Christ so diligently despite being imperfectly taught, what excuse is there for those of us who know the gospel thoroughly and do not try to advance Christ's kingdom as much as they possibly can? Scriptural competence and a heart to spread God's word. We could all be more like Apollos. But there is a problem here. His theology is kind of like 50 Cent's first pitch at the Pirates-Mets game, if you saw that. Just a little off. Something's not quite right. Verse 25. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. And that's a problem. He knows of a baptism illustrating the need of repentance, but not a baptism that points to regeneration and union with Christ by faith, which means he knows some true things about Jesus, but some incomplete things. He needs further instruction. And so in verse 26... When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And this is love right here. Notice they don't interrupt him while he's talking or publicly rebuke him. They're not ready to pounce at the first scent of error. You know, some people have a a self-professed gift of discernment. Uh, but they're not really discerning when it comes to things like timing or how to say things in a way that doesn't make the other person feel like a complete idiot for understanding things differently. Here, Apollos needs to be adjusted, but not humiliated. And Priscilla and Aquila recognize that it's their role to help him. And you might be called to play this role in someone else's life. 
If you've been a Christian for some time, you should be able to explain the way of God more accurately to someone in need. It's funny because this meeting they have is essentially a summer Bible jam discipleship group. You know, it's just three believers getting together to discuss the things that matter most. And there's something else here to pay attention to. Notice both Priscilla and Aquila explain these things to Apollos. And she's mentioned first. I don't know, maybe because she did most of the talking. This, this text kind of messes with a caricature of, of women not having any contribution in these settings. We believe that Scripture teaches that men are called to lead in the church and in the home. And 1 Timothy 2.12 is, is clear that women are not to teach or to exercise authority over men in the local church. But here we find Priscilla with her husband helping to explain the scriptures to Apollos. And no doubt we have women in our midst who are, are gifted by God in this way and can be a great help to us. We're not told the details of this conversation, but it's clear that Apollos is open to instruction because without missing a beat, he is sent on with encouragement and commendation to greater ministry, which which means he received what they shared. But in order to do that, he had to move from where he was. Are you okay with being told that you're wrong? That you need to understand things more accurately? That some of your ideas need to be corrected? Look, we're, we're all in need of this. I've experienced this more times than I can remember. Where more mature believers have taken me aside and, and, and helped me to see things I needed to learn. But here's the question. Are you seeking to grow? And your knowledge of the truth. You hungry for more? Is there a practice of study present in your life? I recently came across an article from the Wall Street Journal titled Luxury Homeowners Who Ditch the Dining Room. And it says, in the era when most people eat at the kitchen island or in front of the TV, the dining room has become perhaps the least used room of the house. Now some luxury homeowners are eliminating their dining rooms altogether, instead using the space for dens, living pavilions, and flex spaces in which dinner may sometimes be served. Now this represents a cultural shift away from families eating meals together around the dining room table. But you know, I also wonder if there's something else that has been functionally removed from the Christian's home which would be the study. Is there a study in your spiritual house? Is there a place for that in your real estate? Let's do a thought experiment. You don't don't have to turn in your answers. But if, if you've been a Christian for a few years now, consider this. Do you know the difference between justification and sanctification? Can you give a definition of the Trinity that doesn't slip into heresy? (laughs) 
Can you answer basic questions about the faith, such as what about people who haven't heard the gospel? Are there scripture passages that you would go to in a conversation with somebody about things like election or the sovereignty of God? And I'm not trying to make anyone feel uncomfortable here, at least not more than is necessary. But if you feel the Lord encouraging you to grow in your understanding of truth, then go to the bookstore after the service. Grab a copy of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or attend the School of the Word or the Crosstalk Leaders class. Join a Summer Bible Jam discipleship group, for goodness sakes. But know this. The study of truth takes time. It takes work. It is not easily shoved into a busy life. And you know, we live in an age where soundbite critique is much more common than patient study. This is illustrated in a post from the New York Times called Faking Cultural Literacy. The author writes, I can't help it. Every few weeks, my wife mentions the latest book her book club is reading, and no matter what it is, whether I've read it or not, I offer an opinion of the work based entirely on what exactly? Often these are books I've not even read a review or essay about. Yet I freely hold forth on the grandiosity of Cheryl Strayed or the restrained sentimentality of Edwidge Dentica. These data motes are gleaned apparently from the ether or more realistically from various social media feeds. What was Solange Knowles' elevator attack on Jay-Z about? I didn't watch the security camera video on TMZ. It would have taken too long. But I scrolled through enough chatter to know that Solange had scrubbed her Instagram feed of photos of her sister Beyonce. He goes on to say, It's never been so easy to pretend to know so much without actually knowing anything. We pick topical, relevant bits from Facebook, Twitter, or email news alerts and then regurgitate them. Instead of watching Mad Men or the Super Bowl or the Oscars or a presidential debate, you can simply scroll through someone else's live tweeting of it or read the recaps the next day. Our cultural canon is becoming determined by whatever gets the most clicks. Now, what's his conclusion? Well, I don't know, because at that point I decided just to stop reading it and summarizing it and, and use it as a sermon illustration. <laughs> you see, soundbite critique is easy. But God calls us to think deeply about certain things. And there's no replacing that. And eternity will reveal the difference. I love this quote from Kevin DeYoung his new book, Taking God at His Word. He says, sticking with the scriptures may seem like a light thing now, but we will feel the weight of it someday. There will come a time when it will be shown whether our lives were founded upon trivialities or realities. And there are realities that are worth knowing well. Let's occupy ourselves with them. There's one other thing to note about Apollos. Verse 27. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. 
So he goes on to minister in Achaia, and we, and we learn from 1 Corinthians that he spent a good bit of time in Corinth, which was the capital of Achaia. But look at the nature of his ministry. In verse 27 again, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Right, how did he help them? This is, this is noteworthy. Verse 28. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And, and this is essentially the ministry of apologetics or the presentation and defense of the faith. And, and this is instructive. Because believers are served by the reasonable demonstration of the truth of Christianity before its opponent. It's not just the unbelieving Jews who were helped by Apollos, but the believing community when this guy showed up and was able to give an answer to them. You ever feel like you're ridiculous for believing what you do? Honestly. I feel that way sometimes. That's how our culture wants us to feel. And of course, Jesus taught us to expect this. But we are helped by those who are willing to engage, those who attack the faith and present reasons to believe. There's a service in a Douglas Wilson speaking on a college campus before students holding protest signs as he winsomely presents the beauty and the truth of the Christian worldview. Or a William Lane Craig, whom Sam Harris has said has put the fear of God in many of his fellow atheists going toe-to-toe with professional philosophers and never failing to present the best case. And here Apollos' mouth is not only filled with eloquence, but arguments. There's a, a necessary and edifying role for argument in the Christian life. And did you know that there are good arguments for the truth of Christianity? Arguments for the existence of God, for the resurrection, for the reliability of scriptures. You familiar with some of them? Let's be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Again, if you want to do more study, books like Timothy Keller's The Reason for God are a good place to start. Christianity is reasonable, but we are not rationalists. We are desperately dependent upon God to show up. And that's what our text highlights in the next episode. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And this is a really interesting text for a number of reasons, and more than we'll be able to look at this morning. There's some question about what exactly Luke means by the word disciple in in verse 1. You know, what in the world is a disciple who hasn't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit? But what they probably mean by that isn't that they didn't know who the Spirit was. 
That'd be difficult to miss if, you know, they read the Old Testament or received any of John the Baptist's teaching. But they, they didn't know that the Spirit had arrived, that he had been given. In other words, we didn't know that there is a Holy Spirit to be received and enjoyed. But what did they know? Well, apparently... These disciples knew about the ministry of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And they probably knew about Jesus' death and resurrection. But like many Jews in dispersion, they they may have left Jerusalem after the Passover and were unaware of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost or the practice of Christian baptism. Donald Barnhouse tells a story of some mountain dwellers living toward the end of the 18th century who left the area of Virginia and and lived away from city settlements without any contact with outsiders for about 20 years. And after a while, some group of travelers straggled in and they had some conversation about the outside world. And and they asked them, uh, you know, what they thought about the New Republic, and the policies of the Continental Congress. And they replied, we haven't so much as heard that there is a Continental Congress or a New Republic. They, they considered themselves as being loyal subjects of the British crown. And they hadn't heard of George Washington or the Revolutionary War. And this is the kind of circumstance that these disciples in Ephesus find themselves in. They do not know that the Spirit has come. They probably knew about Jesus being the Messiah, but they haven't made the appropriate connections. It is the Messiah who brings the Spirit. If the Messiah has come, then the Spirit has come. If Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, ascended, and exalted, then the Spirit is present in power. There's a new age. And it's the age of the Spirit. See, these disciples were chronologically out of sync. They, they were needing, needing being caught up to the reality of Pentecost. And their situation's somewhat unique historically. But whatever our thoughts on the condition of these disciples, it's, it's interesting that the question that Paul asks them is, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed. There's something that Paul is looking for. Something experientially distinguishing. He doesn't stop with the category of belief. What distinguishes the Christian experience for Paul here is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is a set of doctrines, yes, but it is also an encounter. And these disciples were in need of an encounter. And we may or may not be in precisely the same situation, but we are in need of an encounter. Do you need to be brought up to date practically with the reality of Pentecost? Are you aware that the Spirit has been given and that we are to be filled with His presence. It's interesting because today's Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know it until earlier this week when I began to study these things. This was just the next place in Acts that we were to look at. 
Obviously, we know when Christmas and Easter are. And it's easy for Pentecost to fade from significance. Of course, knowing the date isn't as important as knowing what it represents. Are you living a kind of Christianity that requires no supernatural empowerment? That never asks of you more than your natural capacities are able to offer? That's not normal Christianity. Normal Christianity is stepping into situations that seem to be irreparably broken. And ministering in moments when you feel like you have nothing to bring. It's parents facing the complexity of needs that their children represent and responding with patience and care. It's having the courage to share the gospel once again with the relatives who have shut you down a hundred times. It's faith for seasons of uncertainty, fighting to trust the promises of Christ when your circumstances and your own heart give you no reason to go on. Who is sufficient for these things? Of course, we aren't. We need the Spirit. That's what happens next. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And this would be typical for descriptions in the book of Acts of the Spirit's work. There's a certain sound to them, a certain emphasis in Luke of the coming upon and, and filling activity of the Spirit. You might remember some of them. Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And the disciples at Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The prophecy in Joel in 2.17, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And 4 verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then the Jerusalem disciples again in 431, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Samaritans 8, 16, the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Gentiles in 1044, when Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. But Saul in 13.9, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. That's an interesting picture right there. 13.52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And, And some of these descriptions have to do with receiving the Spirit for the first time, but many of them are about ongoing experiences of the Spirit's fullness. But in each case, you see some sort of activity associated with it. There are ministry and missional results of the Spirit's work. 
This is an important aspect of Luke's theology of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Keith has shared this with us before. The, The Spirit in John's gospel brings about the new birth and leads us into all truth. The Spirit in Paul's writings indwells us, testifies to our adoption, enables our sanctification. But the Holy Spirit in Luke primarily marks us with God's presence and empowers us for witness. That's the emphasis. And this is something that we need in increasing measure. Some of you might be aware that Acts 19 sometimes gets brought into a debate about how exactly we should understand the filling of the Spirit or whether spirit baptism is something that takes place at conversion or subsequent experience. And that's an important discussion. But we probably shouldn't let it distract us from what is clear in the book of Acts, which is that the Spirit's filling is to be received again and again. We have Him. Yes. And we need more of Him. Craig Keener writes, Meanwhile, other passages rarely cited by either side in the debate show us that the work of the Spirit not only means more than conversion, but also more than any single subsequent experience. Acts indicates that believers may receive empowerment subsequent to their second experience. Paul likewise speaks of living a Spirit-filled life walking by the same Spirit one has already received. Passages that surely deserve more emphasis in the way most of us live. These passages suggest that the whole sphere of the Spirit's work becomes available at conversion, but believers may experience some aspects of the Spirit's work only subsequent to conversion. Those interpreters who emphasize our completeness in Christ and the sufficiency of spiritual resources provided us in salvation are correct. When the Spirit enters our lives, God makes us new and gives us complete access to the Spirit's resources. At the same time, it is also biblical to emphasize that we need to draw on that empowerment in practice and that all Christians, no matter how full of God's Spirit, can grow to seek God more deeply. And we want to grow. We should note what evidences the Spirit's presence here. The Jews referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of prophecy because they associated the spirit with insight from God and guidance. And here when the spirit shows up, he is true to his reputation. Verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about seven men in all. So the Spirit comes to these disciples and he brings gifts to them. And they truly are gifts. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, these are ways of God saying, I'm here. I'm in your midst. There are a variety of spiritual gifts, a variety of functions that we're called to play in the body and none is to be 
elevated above the rest or to the exclusion of others. But there is something special here. Prophecy and interpreted tongues are God stepping into the gathering of his people and turning up the volume on his voice. We always have his voice, right? We always have his word. Infallible, authoritative revelation in scripture. But sometimes God delights to speak with specificity and timeliness into our current situation of need. He reminds us that he knows us through and through. That all the uniqueness and complexity that we're facing has not been lost on him. And he lays it on someone's heart to make that known. And those of us who've been on the receiving end of this ministry know what a blessing it is. So let's lean in. Let's follow Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up, man. Normal Christianity values doctrine and truth. And normal Christianity desperately needs and eagerly pursues the supernatural. Ray Ortland has said, real Christianity is not primarily management. You try to do that, just manage your situation, get a better grip, run it through your mind, you know, if you're staying up late, anxious thoughts, thinking that you can somehow get in control over it. Try to beat your spouse into sanctification. <laughs> it doesn't work. Because real Christianity is not primarily management. Real Christianity is primarily miracle. He goes on to write, Authentic Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling within the human being. It is sheer miracle from beginning to end. Christian discipleship certainly does marshal our energies and motivate our efforts and focus our desires with an intensity we've never known before. But still, the Christian life is primarily something to be received from on high, not offered from below. Christian living is fundamentally response to God's inbreaking miracle. And that is why the most meaningful posture for the Christian is an open heart. I want to give us the opportunity to respond with an open heart. Last week, we had a prayer meeting which provided a moment for people to come forward seeking a fresh filling from God's Spirit. But maybe you weren't at that meeting. Or maybe you're in a different place now than you were then. You live in a life that is characterized by the age of the Spirit. That looks like you're aware that He has been given and that we are to receive His work. Does it appear things like love, joy, 
peace, patience, the Spirit leading you to serve for God's kingdom in in ways that you're not naturally inclined to do. You want a mission? Is he equipping, gifting, supplying resources for you to do amazing things? Are we just trying to survive life? I know what it feels like to just try to survive life. And weakness marks our days on this earth. But that just tells us we need the Spirit. Self-sufficiency is simply not an option. So, where do you need an injection of the supernatural? Where do you need God to show up? Let's have a moment to invite God's ministry here. If you feel the Lord leading and prompting you to receive, that's the word that we're using here. It means He's in control, but He delights to give like a father. If the Lord's leading you to come forward and receive, as we begin to sing, if you just make your way to the front, in a moment we'll have some folks come and pray for you. So let's come forward. Let's eagerly pursue God's presence.